All right, open to 1 Samuel 11. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people, that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. All right, thank you. Um, so in May, Sonia and I will have been married for 10 years. And uh, I remember, thank you, uh, and I remember uh, about, you know, 10 years ago, for whatever reason, and, and maybe my eyes were just open to it a little bit, but there was this big resurgence in the church uh, about leadership, husband leadership, and a lot of, like, uh, a lot of writers writing about leadership, and man, you've got to lead your wife, you've got to lead your family, and I'm like, yeah, I'm getting married, I'm like, yeah, how do you do that? And it, and it was a little bit crickets. I mean, it was a little bit like nobody, everybody's really inspired to lead their family, lead their wife, but there was not a lot of practical uh, how to. Uh, and, and so it was really challenging. And hopefully, you know, in some ways, 10 years later, I've uh, learned a few things. Um, but uh, leadership is hugely important in our society today. 
Some people are, are given leadership roles either through the organization that they're hired for. Some people are uh, leading in their position in, in the family, whether it's the husband leadership or wives. You do have leadership responsibilities in the home as well uh, and even outside of it if, if you're in a position given, again, at, through a job. Uh, students, kids, don't think that you're not leading people and how you influence them and how you take charge of situations and how you uh, live your life around those around you. So in our story this morning, we're going to look at Saul. Uh, we're going to look at Saul in one of his finer moments as king of Israel. Uh, and, and because he actually starts off really great, right? We, he starts off really great. He displays some godly leadership characteristics, uh, and I want us to look at them. There's about four that I want us to look at. Again, this list is not exhaustive. This is not all of the things that make you a great leader. But I do think if we, if we take these to heart and we actually apply them into our life, uh, then they can be very helpful in whatever leadership position you're in. And, and going back to even what David said a few weeks ago, what I think the, the underlying quality that, that lead, this type of leadership has is they're, they're not takers, they are givers, just like God. They're godly characteristics, and God is a giver. He is not a taker. And we're not the king of Israel, of course, but I do think that no, no matter your position of leadership and influence and authority, that you can apply some of these. We can all apply some of these uh, godly characteristics. Okay, so in our story this morning, Israel has participated in uh, the, the initiation ceremony of Saul last week. We had a long live the king, and, and everyone goes back to their home uh, where they were assigned lands. And a guy named Nahash, who's the leader of the, the Ammonites, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead is a little south of the Sea of Galilee and on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, and... and what that means is the Ammonites came and they besieged the city, which basically they, they encamp around it and they cut off supply lines and they basically either starve them out or, or don't allow uh, the, the people of the city to get the supplies they need or to get messengers out to, for help. And so let's stop and think about the Israelites here for a second because what they say is, you know, to, to Nahash is, if you make a treaty with us, we'll serve you. And just last week, now I don't know the time frame of this, but it probably isn't a really long time. Uh, the Israelites, first they, they go to God and they say, we want a king so we can be like the other nations. Okay, we don't want one because that's what God has assigned us here. We want to be like the other nations. And so then, last week they get the king and they say, long live the king. And now another king has showed up and they say, man, we'll worship you or we'll serve you if you just don't kill us. Right? And so, so their, their swaying on this is really kind of uh, incredible. But Nahash says, okay, sure. Sure, I'll, I'll make a treaty with you. But if I do, I'm going to gouge out your right eye. Now, Nahash was a, a bit uh, infamous for this. But what, what this does is, you know, most soldiers would carry their shield with their left hand and, and were able to look and fight with their right side. Right? So when he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make you serve me, I'm going to make you a disgrace, they couldn't fight. They couldn't be soldiers. They couldn't uh, work in that way. They were basically confined to a life of, of servitude. Right? So the elders say... All right, well, well let, us send, let us send messengers out for help. And Nahash, in his arrogance, says, sure. You know, it's kind of like, the, uh, it reminded me as I was reading, the, like a James Bond villain. You know, he's got him tied up and like a laser on him. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to leave now. See you later. And somehow he breaks out, right? Like, why? Why the arrogance of Nahash? Right, sure, there's no way that anybody's going to come and help. And if they do, what are they going to do? Right, so he lets them go. 
So the Israelites send out messengers to Gibeah of Saul, where Saul is, and when they uh, when it's reported, the people, everything just shuts down. They break down. They, they mourn and they're crying and they're weeping uh, over the people of uh, Jabesh Gilead. And now we look, look at what Saul has been doing since the time of his initiation as king. He's, he comes in from the field. He's been working the field. And it may not seem like a huge deal in, in the context of the story, but it's actually the, the first application of, of godly leadership that I want us to talk about this morning. Because godly leaders lead with a spirit of humility. Godly leaders lead with a spirit of humility. You know, sometimes I, I say, you know, leadership 101. Don't uh, ask anyone to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Okay, Saul had been anointed as king, but uh, as Matthew Henry so cleverly puts, providence had not yet found him business as king. Okay, there's nothing for him to do yet as far as King, king business, kingly affairs. So Saul leaves whatever leadership there is to Samuel and uh, continues to go, who continues to go around and, and, and admonish and serve uh, on a spiritual level. And, and Saul goes back home and he tends to his flock. And this is very much to Saul's credit because he didn't get puffed up because of his advancement. Rather, he makes sure that his family, his flock, uh, his household is taken care of and provided for. He doesn't say, well, now that I'm king, I'm going to tax everyone because I'm king and I need to provide for my family, so I'm going to do it this way. No, he wasn't seeking to be an extra burden on his people because of his position. He goes home and he provides the same way he always had until God providentially provides kingly duties and responsibilities for him that would draw him away from his home. If he neglected his domestic affairs, how would they eat? How would his family be provided for? And Solomon actually spoke about this very idea later in Proverbs 27, uh, 23 and 24. He says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure all generations. Right? We, 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 got, we have to pay attention to our flocks. So Saul is a humble leader at this point, not, taking, not seeking to take advantage of his position, not seeking to be a taker. Rather, to lead by example and to say, I'm taking care of my home and my people and my family until the Lord has something for me to do otherwise. So what does that look like for us today? What, what application can we have, can we take from this? Well, I think there's two points of application here that I'm going to talk about. Could be more. Uh, but I think the question here is to ask, are you using that position of authority to make much of yourself or to make much of those around you? Right? Are you, if you're in a given uh, position authority for whatever reason, hired position, or you, you're, you've become a husband or a parent, a, a wife, do you use that position to make much of yourself or to elevate those around you? And then you do the hard work. You'd be willing to do the same thing that everyone else does. Uh, this is why Paul tells us, hey, I, you know, I never asked for anything from you, but I worked with my hands not to be a burden and so that you would know that I, I'm not in it for gain, for selfish gain. I'm in it for you. Right? Look at my life and how I've cared for you and not asked anything of you. And this is what we, we need, how we need to lead today. It displays a humility in our leadership. So godly leaders lead with a spirit of humility. That's the first thing. Let's keep going. So Saul gets back and he sees all the people weeping and asks, hey, what, what is going on? And he's told of the situation and the spirit of the Lord rushes on Saul again. And his anger is greatly kindled. And he takes a yoke of oxen and he cuts it up and sends it throughout Israel. And he says, hey, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, 
so shall it be done to your oxen. He says, hey, if you, if you don't want to help your brother in a time of need, that's fine. If you don't come out after us and, and go in and fight this atrocity, that's fine. But just know I'm going to cut up your oxen. Right? And, and that's what's going to happen to your way of provision. And it says, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So there's a serious injustice happening in Jabesh Gilead. Right? This leader, Nahash, is seeking to conquer uh, the Israelites to pluck out their eyeballs and make them a slave and disgrace them. Right? So Saul is going right to this injustice. This leads to the second trait of godly leadership is that godly leaders seek to end injustice, not just mourn it. Okay, They seek to end injustice, not just mourn it. The people of Gibeah heard the news and they started weeping. They started weeping. And now it's proper to mourn when people hear of injustice. But the people of Gibeah were content to mourn as though that were enough. But Saul, on the other hand, heard about the injustice, became enraged by the idea and the atrocity of it. And I would say that this is a godly anger. Right? It's not a selfish anger because it, it's an injustice against humans who are made in the image of God. It's against God's particular people and it's an injustice against God, not against Saul. Okay, so he is... He is God has godly anger towards the situation. And, and this is really, I think, a way in which we can uh, differentiate between godly anger and, and righteous anger, if you will, and unrighteous anger. You know, most of the time we think the injustice is against us personally, and so our anger is kindled, and it's rooted in an injustice against us rather than an offense to God. Okay, so this is definitely an offense against God and his people. So Saul is enraged by the injustice. And having the spirit rush upon him, he, he concocts a plan to, to, end, to seek to end this particular injustice. He leads with action, and he's leading the charge. Right? He's leading the charge. Remember, even back to the, the first kind of idea that he's not willing to, to ask somebody to do something he's not willing to do himself. He doesn't say, you know, hey, I'm going to send you into battle. You let me know how it goes. Right? No, he says, you better come with Samuel and myself into battle. I'm going to be leading. I'm going to be taking us in there. I'm going to do the work, but you better come with me. So again, follow me. I'll be out in the front lines fighting next to you, making sure the battle is won. And so what does this, again, application-wise, what does this look like for us today? Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but I just want to talk about what, what we can see in our world today that are injustices. Right, real, true injustices, and I think against God himself, that we should have a, a degree of righteous anger kindled for. Uh, abortion. In 2018, there were 865,000 abortions, which, praise God, that number is going down, but it's not zero. Okay, so that's a lot. Between the years of 1953 and 2011, more than 50 million babies have been legally murdered. And, you know, if you're in here this morning, I don't, I don't know everyone's past. If you're in here this morning and, and you've had an abortion or you've been a part of an abortion, uh, I wanted to say that the Lord loves you. Right? He, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So it's not about shaming anyone. It's not about bringing that back up. But uh, this is an injustice against God's people, children. And so we need to be aware of it. We, need to, we want that number to be zero. And we need to... Yes, we need to fight for, for governmental legislation. We do need to do that, but we also need to be 
the hands and feet of Christ. We need to you know, be willing to adopt. We need to be willing to walk with these uh, pregnant ladies who might have, you know, for one reason or another, become pregnant. Uh, we need to be able to walk the line, go right into the battle uh, with this in particular. The church should be lead on the front line of this battle, not just mourning it, but getting up and going to do something about it. Uh, two, human trafficking. Human trafficking is the world's fastest growing crime. It's the world's fastest growing crime. There's an estimated 24.9 million people trapped in forced labor via human trafficking worldwide. Almost 25 million people involved in human trafficking. And more than 50% of those are sexually exploited. Okay, so that's 12.5 million people. And this is happening in our own backyard. It's not just happening in other parts of the world. The, the, it's an estimated... $290 million uh, uh, of the human trafficking economy in the city of Atlanta in 2014 was $250 million, $290 million. Okay, let me say that again because I didn't say it very well. The city of Atlanta, the, the human trafficking economy in the city of Atlanta was $290 million in 2014. So it's happening in our own backyard. Of course, these are the big ones, right? But there's obviously others. Uh, that are even more on a, a local level, you know, ado- uh, orphans. Adoption is a huge injustice. Obviously, a big ministry here at Hope. Uh, ways that we want to adopt kids and, and make it to where they don't have, uh, they don't have to grow up without families. Obviously, racism is a huge one in the South, uh, in in our in our society today. Uh, you know, and and here's just something that I've personally learned over the last year or two with with uh, working to adopt Samuel. Uh, from South Korea is, you know, you know, one of the things that I would always think about and probably a lot of us think about and, and, and people that have friends who are uh, of, of other cultures, other colors, that we go, I, don't, I just don't see it. I, I mean, I, I don't see them as black or white or, or Chinese or anything. I don't see that. But I think a, a more godly approach to that is actually to see it. Right? It's to see it. It's to see that God made them that way. To, to white, black, Hispanic, whatever it is, he made them that way so we should engage that culture and love that culture and love the diversity that God has created. It puts glory on God. It takes away from his glory when we say, I just don't see it. Right? So that's where we need to to be fighting that. Homelessness, hunger, these are injustices. The church, again, needs to be on the front line of fighting some of these problems. Yes, Fighting, again, for, for, for governmental legislation, but also, again, being the hands and feet of Christ, doing the work, engaging it on a, on a very personal level. Getting in the fight and supporting them, or supporting those who are. Right? Not everybody in here is going to be able to adopt, but you can provide money for adoption. They're expensive. Right? Not everybody can go and fight human trafficking in you know, Eastern Asia, but you can, man, you can support people that do. We need to be on the front lines of doing this. But even locally, we need to work with people, work with organizations, fund them with our dollars, fund them with our time and our energy. This is how the church leads. I would even say a little closer to home, uh, there is an injustice in the way that kids are being raised in our society. Right? So in our culture today, I mean, we like to, well, maybe we don't like to, maybe we shouldn't, but poke fun at millennials, you know, helicopter parents, however you want to say some of these things. But if we're truly Christian in our parenting, uh, then our families are going to look a little weird to the people around us. 
They just are. They're going to look a little strange. We need to bravely lead into that and say, that's okay. It's okay if our family looks a little different because we believe that it honors Christ. That it honors Christ in the way that we parent, when we parent. And we want to raise kids that honor Christ. We don't let our kids participate in the world the same way other kids get to, and that's okay. We're teaching them things that might not be in the textbook, and that's okay. Sometimes we say no to things on Saturday because we need our kids to be in church on Sunday. We've got to lead our kids towards Christ, and oftentimes that means living differently than the world around us. And we can sit on the sidelines and mourn the fact that the world is falling apart, which as Christians should not surprise us. Or we, we take the time that we have left to really fight to push back the dark in these areas. So godly leaders seek to end injustice, not just mourn it. So, story, 330,000 people come together as one man and they say to the messengers, go back and tell the men of Jabesh-Gilead tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And sure enough, the next day, the men are assembled, they go in and they rout uh, the Ammonites and save Jabesh-Gilead. And then, interestingly enough, the people say to Samuel, who was it that said that Saul shall reign over us? Right? Bring those people forward so that we can kill them. Right? We don't need any, any defectors, any detractors from Saul as king. And then, even though they spoke to Samuel, Saul is the one that pipes up and says, Nope, no. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This leads to the next uh, trait of a godly leader. And that's godly leaders lead with compassion. Godly leaders lead with compassion. Saul had the people behind him. He could have easily taken the opportunity to get rid of the people who opposed him, but he didn't. Right? Nobody would have said a thing. And once again, he held his peace, as it said last week. When I say that he had compassion, I mean he, he looked upon the weaker party and did not use his power to his advantage. His place of authority to his advantage. He didn't abuse his power. He, he used it to set a godly example of how to treat those around him, even his detractors. Ironically, as most of us know, uh, Saul doesn't always act this way. And when he's seeking to kill David, David shows him the same compassion. And I wonder if he thinks back to this. And when, Paul, when Saul uh, is out and he, you know, David cuts off the part of his robe and then he says, you know, why are you trying to kill me? And he holds up the piece of the robe. If Saul just, oh man, what have I done? I wonder if that comes back to his memory. So we lead with compassion. And what does that look like for us today? Maybe you're at a position at work where you've got an employee that, man, you'd love to fire or you'd love to have quit or be transferred because they just always seem to make your life harder. Uh, maybe you're the boss that you could easily fire someone and decide to show compassion and care more about the person than the project. In great transparency, I'm actually not very good at this. Uh, I often elevate the project. It's a, a, a perfectionism, if you will, which causes me to detract or hurt people uh, that I'm involved with sometimes. If I've wronged you in that, I apologize. But this is what, the, the, this is what can happen. We, we are given a place of authority. Instead of using it for compassion, we use it to, to have selfish gain. Parents, how quickly can we use our power to uh, squash rebellion right, in the home? To, to, uh, our authority is... is questioned and we use our authority to put down rebellion. Now, I'm not saying we let the kids rule the roost, if you will, 
But I am saying, asking the question, are we responding with compassion? You know, when our kids act like kids, uh, you know, adults can act foolish. Why does it surprise us when kids do it? You know, when our own kids don't act like uh, mature adults, why is it surprising to us? And then why do we respond not compassionately if we already know that this is how they're going to respond? Are we responding powerfully to squash rebellion or are we responding firmly but with compassion and taking the time to teach them the Christ-like response rather than just stopping the disobedience because it has inconvenienced us in the moment, right? This is the hard part of parenting to go from, hey, stop it to, hey, you need to stop because you're acting this way and this is what's going on and maybe this is a better way. That takes time, energy, effort. But that's the difference between Christian parents, godly parents, and parents who just don't want to be inconvenienced. Right? And so we need to, to take that next step because that's the compassionate next step. Husbands, in the same vein, are you leading your wife with compassion or are you using your power and authority to put her down? Are you abusing the power the Lord has given you in the home? In Ephesians 5, it's clear that husbands love their wife and give their life up for them because that's what Christ did for his bride. Right? Because that's what we want to mimic Christ in our homes and in our relationships. That's what he did. And so that's how we're to respond. So again, godly leaders lead with compassion. So after this, Samuel says, you know what? Let's go to Gilgal, the place where Israel first entered the land after crossing the Jordan River. And let us renew the kingdom there. And so they go and they make, uh, so they make Saul king before the Lord and they sacrifice peace offerings before the Lord and there's a great rejoicing. And this one is not as explicit uh, in my opinion, but I think we can easily discern this last trait of godly leadership and that is that godly leaders give credit to God for their success. Godly leaders give credit to God for their success. Now it's a little debated as to whether Samuel uh, was what he meant here by renewing the kingdom. Did he mean, you know, we're going to go and establish Saul in a more formalized way because he's led this, the, you know, the team to this great victory? Or is he more subtly reminding the people that even though Saul had the victory, it was God who made it possible and brought it about, brought about the victory every step of the way. To bring them back to the place where the Lord it rolled away the reproach of Egypt among the Israelites where they celebrated the first Passover in the land. And the answer is probably a little bit of yes to both of them. Right? He probably, uh, it was a more formalized, like now he is, he is king, he had led them to this victory, but remember that even though he is the man king, there's a God king that we should be celebrating. That's who the covenant's with. That's who the, the kingdom is truly ruled by. And, and the thing about this is that uh, both Saul and Samuel affirmed it. Right? So they, they both recognize that Yahweh has brought salvation to Israel, not Saul, but Yahweh. It was his doing, him fighting on behalf of the people, and we're going to go and worship him alone. You know, Saul, remember, he's a head taller, he's stronger, he's bigger, better looking than everybody in Israel, and he's the one going, you know, it was the Lord that worked salvation here, not me. Last week, we, we talked about God's providence, which is the way he, he was working in our lives to bring about his, his purposes, uh, the way he's in his glory and our, in our transformation and our good. And in light of God's providence, we would be foolish to take credit for our success as though we were the ones that made it happen. All right, God has gifted us to be people who represent Christ, who are skilled and gifted, 
and capable to participate in the good works that he has prepared for us in advance. But does that mean our ultimate success or failure relies on our strength and our ability and our skills? The answer is no. In fact, we should, we should put forth our best effort and do our best and leave the result to the Lord, to God. And, and, and when, the success, when it's successful, we say, man, praise the Lord. He's the one that did it. And I would even say when it's unsuccessful in our eyes, we say, praise the Lord. It didn't happen like we thought it was going to. But we know that that's ultimately what's best. I did my work. I did the hard work. I tried. I put forth my best effort. But God, failure or success, that's on the Lord. That's on the Lord. Yeah. And for us, you know, man, I got a promotion at work because I'm so awesome. I'm so good at my job. I put sin to death because I worked so hard. All my kids are super well behaved. They're doctors and they're believers. Right? The trifecta. Uh, our church attendance is a thousand people because we're such good preachers, right? None of this is none of this is on us. Like this is the Lord's, uh, uh, the Lord bringing about success. And this is actually one I think that brings it full circle, back to the beginning. Saul was leading out of humility here. So whether farming or conquering armies, he's just doing what the Lord has for him in that moment. And whether it's successful or not, he's saying it was the God who brought about salvation, not me. Not me. Pride makes us takers. It, takes, it makes us take the credit, but humility makes us givers, makes us give credit to God. So godly leaders give credit to God for their success. So as we close this morning, I want to take a step back uh, and actually look at the, the, the macro, right? So we're looking at the the trees, I'm going to look at the forest for a minute. Uh, God in his kindness and his brilliance is revealing himself through these stories, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and reminding us of what's really going on here. Think about this. Adam and Eve uh, were tempted by a serpent and fell, and God said, I'm going, to, I'm going to send one who's going to crush the serpent. Right. And so we, we, as the history rolls on and continues to, to, to play out, we get to Saul, who is king who becomes the Messiah, the anointed one, right? That's what that means. So you have an anointed, uh, anointed king who will save God's people from their enemies. Do you know who Saul's first enemy was? It was a guy named Nahash. Do you know what the word Nahash means? Serpent. So you've got the anointed king of Israel who will save uh, the people of Israel from their enemies who happens to be a serpent. All right, I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. So God has done something and is continuing to do something that is abundantly more than we could ask or think. Right? And the person of Christ, who will later come, is pointing forward to Christ. He brought forth his anointed one who would once and for all crush the serpent. Right? The, the, who would once for all save God's people from their enemies. You see, Christ came and bore our sins upon himself and was punished for our iniquities. So that if we believe in him, our lives will be hidden in him. And we are no longer to face the enemy that is death eternally, apart from Christ. Christ will come again and all the enemies will be put under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. 1 Corinthians 15 says. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And as we take the bread and the juice this morning, we want to we give credit to God for the victory. Right, the, the daily victories, yes, but the eternal victory that he has when he raised from the dead over sin, being punished for our sins.
And we want to give him credit for saving us from our enemies. So let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for saving us, for providing Christ, for for making a plan to save us from our enemy that we could not, being the tallest and strongest and best fighter we could be, could not overtake that enemy. And yet you provided a way, you made a way for us so that we could be saved. We could be saved from our enemy. God, as we take this bread and this juice this morning, I pray that you would remind us of that victory and that we would celebrate it, that we would give you credit for the victory, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, amen.